Good morning, everyone. I think I failed to introduce myself. My wife can't remember either. My name is Bob Underwood. I am one of the elders here. Uh, Our pastor is on vacation, as is uh, our other elder who normally uh, brings the message when Leonard's unavailable. So I'm the last man standing, so I'm going to bring, uh, bring the message to you this morning, but I am glad that you are here, and I am uh, more than happy to, uh, to lead us this morning as we look into God's Word and see how it applies to our lives. So uh, our, our ranks are a little depleted due to spring break. So again, I just want to uh, thank everyone who does the music and does the setup and all the all the support functions here in order to have a worship service. So I appreciate all of you uh, for stepping up and continuing to step up in that. So you see our title uh, this morning for the sermon: How to be happy. Or blessed, and this comes from. Uh, I'm going to take our scripture from Matthew chapter five this morning. And there's a few things relating to our sermon this morning that I would like to get into your conscious thoughts before we begin. The first is the fact that so many people are seeking happiness. We hear that a lot, right? Hey, I just want to be happy. How many, how many times have you heard that? But we're the same way. And so in my experience, you know, when I became a young adult seeking, you know, happiness, if you will, uh, initially that meant a car, right? Having a car. And then it meant having a nicer car. And then maybe a spouse, you know, and then, uh, but then I, you know, I was married, and so now to be happy, I needed my own place, right? So, uh, and then we had children, right? That that would make us happy, having children. Well, now we have children, so now we have to have a house. You can't just have an apartment. You know, you got to have a house. And then we have more children, which required a bigger house and a minivan, right? And then you needed a better paying job so you could start saving for college for your kids. And then you start focusing on your kids to make sure that they were kids that you could be proud of. And then, and it just never ends, right? We're always looking for something else. We're never satisfied with those things that, that, we come to perfu- uh, pers- that we've been pursuing. So over time, we begin to see that happiness And all those things, it's not the answer. It doesn't last. There's always more things that we want. So I want you to think about that desire that you have and that I have as we go into our scripture this morning. What can we learn about being happy? Is happiness really something we should be striving for? Are we looking in the the right places? Is Jesus showing us how to be happy here, or could it be something more? The second thing that I'd like you to be conscious of that we're going to look at 
is what Jesus tells us and to remember as we walk this path of life to ensure that we're focused on the right things. We often chase after things that really don't matter, don't we? When I was in the military, like many of you, I had a lot of pretty ribbons and associated accoutrements on my uniform. Nobody cares now. They don't even know what those shiny things mean. But I sure chased after them when I was in uniform. Many a story could be told of people who have climbed to the top of their professional ladder and realized after they got there it was leaning on the wrong wall. Want to realize your financial goals and lose your family along the way? Many, many have been there and done that. And they will confess to you that they regret it. So how do we stop chasing after shiny objects? Where should our efforts and our lives be focused? The reason that this is important is because some of us have gotten to the point in life where there are less years in front of us than there are behind us. And I don't know about you, but a lot of my peers in this chapter of life are depressed. They wonder what it was all for. They're in their golden years, and instead of finding enjoyment, they are filled with regret, disappointment, and emptiness. How can we, who are believers, live effectively in the light of eternity? So the second item that I want to, you know, for you to be consciously aware of is what Jesus tells us about living our lives today just where you are with the knowledge that you are on firm spiritual footing. How to better live a life with purpose that really matters for believers. We live in confusing times today. As I look back over my life, things that were taught as good when I was growing up, are now determined to be bad. And conversely, things that were bad when I was young are now determined by our society, by the world around us, to be good. Sometimes it seems hard to know what is right and what is wrong. We need to pay attention to who we're listening to. If you are a believer, the Word of God, the Bible, is your reference, your rock. It's the thing that you can always depend on. And we, in this church, in the PCA, most Christians, we believe the Bible is the Word of God, that it is inerrant, meaning without error. The words have not changed over time or with the times, nor will they. So drawing from that truth that never changes, please stand for our reading today from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. 
Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You may be seated. So chapter 5 is the beginning of three chapters in Matthew known as the Sermon on the Mount. So there's a lot there, and we're just going to look at the first, you know, very first part here, uh, just to wet your whistle so that you'll uh, be encouraged to dive in there a little bit more. And this section is known, it may be labeled in your Bibles, as the Beatitudes. So I'm just going to touch briefly on on these. There, there's a lot, you know, we can go very deep uh, one of my friends recently preached on just Matthew 5.5, 5, had a whole sermon on Matthew 5.5. 5. So I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm just giving you a heads up. We're just going to kind of do the wave top uh, on some of these things. <clears throat> but there's some interesting things that you may not have uh, noticed. And the first thing that we must take notice of as we read the first part of chapter 5 who is Jesus focused on in his teaching here? Think about that. We know that there are multitudes present because Jesus has been, you know, healing all kinds of diseases and people, you know, found out about it and they were bringing everybody and their brother and sister to him to be healed and he was healing them and he was preaching in the synagogues and he had multitudes following him uh, at this time. So there's multitudes there, but is he teaching the multitudes? He's teaching his disciples. So look at verse 1 again. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, 
And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. All right, so there's multitudes out there. And so Jesus goes up on the mountain and then his disciples come up to him. And that's where the focus is on his disciples. And in chapter four of Matthew, all right, we see that Jesus called his first disciples. So this is right at the beginning of Jesus teaching his disciples. So I wanted you uh, to notice that in the scripture. We have to remember, you know, the times that they were living in when this happened. Jesus doesn't have a mic, all right? He's not on stage giving a TED Talk. That's not what's going on. His focus is on his disciples. And the reason I bring that up is I don't want you to think, you know, Jesus was a nice person or he was a good teacher and he's just telling all of us nice things to do, nice things that nice people do. No, he was a little more, there's, there's more intention here. He's very focused on, on his disciples. He's showing them how to live. And if we are followers of Jesus, you and I today, he's showing us how to live. So when we see some of these ideas here, these, these were more radical ideas at the time than people were used to. And they're much more radical ideas than we're used to as well. And we notice that what Jesus is saying here, it's not just a list. There's a radical change in mindset. If we are his followers, if we are his disciples, then he's talking to us here. He's telling us how to live our lives on earth. And he's bringing more illumination to the words that he's saying. All right, so this is kind of getting people's attention uh, when Jesus is talking with that illumination that he brings. So when we think of our natural desire to be happy, it's hard to make the connection that doing some of these things is going to make us happy, isn't it? But Jesus doesn't tell us we're going to be happy. What does he say? He uses the word blessed. Now what does that mean? One commentator describes it this way. Being in an enviable position for receiving receiving God's provisions or favor as being an extension of his grace. Another says it this way, enjoying happiness, specifically in Christianity, enjoying the bliss of heaven. So when we pursue happiness for its own sake, we come up empty. But when we live as Jesus instructs us here, we find it. Not a temporal happiness, but a lasting happiness. So with that in mind, let's look a little deeper into what Jesus says in these verses. In verses 3 and 4, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So this, this isn't why we're going to church, right? This isn't what we're what we're looking for. But this is what Jesus is 
telling us to do. So what, what does that mean? Think, think, you know, for a moment here. What do you think Jesus means with both poor in spirit? Blessed are the poor in spirit in mourning. What does that mean? So regarding being poor in spirit, a commentary uh, says it best. So here's a, a commentary I found about being poor in spirit. <clears throat> the philosophers at the time did not reckon humility among their moral virtues, but Jesus puts it first. So being poor in spirit was not looked on as being something to strive for back then, nor is it today. Being poor in spirit means means this. We are aware of and we grieve for our sinful nature, that we recognize the holiness of God that we serve. It helps us see things in the right perspective. We see that we are not to be proud of our accomplishments, thinking we will find God's favor or trust in our good works to save us. We mourn for the world around us, caught up in sin and rebellion toward God the Creator. That our confidence is not in ourselves, but in Christ who saves us. A right perspective is what we need to strive for. And at the end of this verse, it says, Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those of us who have been saved, we already have it. It's in the present tense. Did you notice that? And knowing this eternal, meaning forever, truth carries us through the many challenging circumstances that we face in this life. We know what awaits us, and it's wonderful. So one thing to take from these two verses is a right perspective of our pitiful position apart from the Christ who serves who saves us trusting not in our own works but in the saving work of Christ for our eternal salvation despite our circumstances to be confident in what awaits us and why confidence because he tells us in his word and his word is true Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek. Being meek is cool. Doesn't meek mean weak? Those of you in the military, do they emphasize meekness as a priority? The world around us does not put a high value on being meek. Quite the opposite. So what does being meek mean? Rick Renner, a pastor and teacher, describes it this way. A spiritually meek person is not self-willed, not continually concerned with his own ways, his own ideas, and wishes. They are willing to put themselves in second place and submit themselves to achieve what is good for others. 
Meekness is therefore the antithesis or opposite of self-will, self-interest, and self-assertiveness. Jesus says again later in Matthew eleven twenty nine, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. So if we are Christians trying to be like Jesus, we must strive to be meek. And again, the promise, the meek will inherit the earth. At times, it is helpful to remember that we are not working for an earthly reward, but a heavenly one. Ask yourself, ask yourself, how can I be meek like Jesus says here? What's the Lord saying to you about being meek? Verse 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. The English word satisfied is better translated saturated. You will get your fill. This perhaps doesn't mean as much to us enjoying the many freedoms that we have in this country. We may rail against the injustices we see, but what we see today you and I in America, is nothing compared to what the enslaved Israelites had known. Life had been so unfair to them that righteousness was something they were desperate for. They didn't long for stuff, they longed for righteousness. Jesus is bridging the Old Testament history to his listeners here. Ask yourself, As you read this verse, am I hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Ask yourself if you truly seek to be righteous in the way that you treat your spouse, raise your children, do your professional job, and obey his commands. Verse 7 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, some of you remember we've talked about forgiveness before, and there's a, you know, it's kind of the same concept here. Remember the parable of the unforgiving servant later in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35? The servant, remember, was forgiven a tremendous debt, uh, but then he refused to forgive someone else for a very small debt. And bad things happened to him when the ruler found out about that. So we see the same concept here. We must show mercy to others, not because they deserve it, but because we recognize the great mercy that we have received. When we reflect on the mercy that we have been shown, not only for the life that we once lived, but for the sins we still commit today. Our experience from this and the benefit we receive due to the mercy extended to us gives us a clear understanding and a heart of gratitude, which in turn makes it easier, makes it more natural to extend that mercy to others. 
And when, when we extend mercy to others, real mercy, it gets their attention. It often points them to Christ. So we must not take the mercy we receive for granted, but be spurred to good works by extending it to others, whether we think they deserve it or not. Not always easy to do, though, is it? Verse 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So we could go real deep into this. But I want to focus uh, a bit on what we tend to strive for when we read this verse. And what, what is that tendency that we all have? That tendency is looking good on the outside. So back then, when Jesus was speaking these words, exclusive attention was paid to ceremonial purification and external morality. Focused on the outside of the cup where others could see while neglecting the inside of the cup where only ourselves and God could see. Isn't that what we do? Isn't that what we see around us in the world today? People would rather appear good than do good. Being pure in heart, it's not in the appearance. It's in the doing. So reflect on what that means for you. Verse 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. So what's a peacemaker? Sounds cool. Is it a gun? Benson's commentary describes being a peacemaker this way. Those who are themselves of a peaceable temper and endeavor to promote peace in others, who study to be quiet, and as much as in them lieth to live peaceably with all men. He goes on to say, they shall be called sons of God. That is, they shall be owned by God as his genuine children by reason of their great likeness to him. So many of us have and do struggle in this area. It's easy to get angry and justify it. It's easy to rail against the other side, isn't it? But Jesus is telling us to go against the grain and be a peacemaker. Going against the grain is hard. So I was trained to be an aggressive warfighter. And it was something identified by my superiors as something I had to work on to be more effective in my role. They told me, Bob, you're too nice of a guy. You're not up there to have fun. You're up there to win the fight. So this was a real thing. I was kind of too laid back. So I had to learn how to put my fighter face on. That's what we called it. When the canopy, as the canopy came down over my head, you know. That's what they encouraged me to do. And then when I was out there in a dogfight, I had to be aggressive. 
And I was encouraged to make myself so angry at my adversary that my will to win would bring the result that my superiors expected. So I did that. And it worked. And my performance seemed to please my superiors at the time. But I failed to do it in the right way. I discovered, for me, that my newfound aggressiveness wasn't easy to turn off. And along the way, I added some smack-talking to my list of skills because this was also highly esteemed at work. We greatly admired folks who could shoot others in the head verbally as well. That was ready room life. A little smack talking with the guys, coming in with some awesome put downs into the ready room. In my, in my mind, I wasn't doing anything wrong. I wasn't swearing or anything, right? little sarcasm never hurts anybody, does it? While my peers at work thought I was cool, things didn't translate as well when I got home to my gentle wife and daughters because I didn't turn it off. And they didn't like it. And they did not appreciate it. They didn't care about my aggressiveness and smack-talking at work because they cared more about my relationship to them as a husband and father who they did not want to be aggressive, sarcastic, or cool. They were looking for kind and gentle. They were looking for me to be a peacemaker. My son thought it was hilarious, though. Today, no one seems to care about my skills as a fighter pilot. But I'm still a husband and father. I always will be. Those things last. So I'm not sharing these things with you this morning from a position of, I did everything right. But as a fellow, often failing believer who is also struggling and continuing to grow. So review the seven things that we have mentioned so far and identify what God is shining a light on for your life. What does this mean for you who are listening today? Verses 10 to 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The result of living the previous seven items we have thus far discussed, we see in verses 10 and 11. You will be persecuted. The world will mock you. The world will hate you. Darkness hates the light. Spiritual warfare is real. And despite this, blessings come out of it by Christ drawing others to himself through the light they see in you. Perhaps you've had this experience. You pray for and you love in a very sacrificing fashion someone very dear to you. 
and they make your life miserable for a while. And during that time, you feel very alone. You think about how unfair things are. And you're wondering, hey, is this all really worth it? And after a time, they come to Christ and they're changed forever. Do you dwell on how bad things were before they were saved? No. You rejoice in the, in the changed life and the eternal security that is now theirs, which makes those tough times a further reason to rejoice in God's sovereignty and glory as he worked through your life and the lives of others. This is where we find our joy and happiness. This is how we know that our life has meaning for eternity, not because of what we do, but because of what he is able to do through our lives as we surrender more and more of it to him. Verses 13 through 16, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We are here, you and I, to be salt and light to the world around us. The world needs us to be salt. How many times have you tasted a meal you prepared and thought, hmm, this needs a little salt? Salt adds flavor. It makes things taste better, right? We see many times as we look in history, in in church history as well, when a seemingly nobody was used by God in a history-changing way. And it got people's attention. It turned many to Christ. We rely on who we are in Christ, on Christ in us, and not our own merits. The evidence of the light within us to the lost world around us, the evidence is seen in our good works. It's when we allow Christ in us to accomplish the tasks that we could never do with our own feeble efforts. So remember, you're not saved by your good works, but you were created for good works. So ask yourself if those good works that he has created you for are evident in your life. Ask yourself if his light is evident in your life to others around you. This is a natural outcome of the continuing sanctification process that we're going through. It's a mark of truly being one of his children. So wrapping up, we need to ask ourselves where we are looking for the happiness we seek. Is happiness the goal? Or is it an outcome from following Jesus' teachings here in Matthew and elsewhere? Perhaps we're looking in the wrong place the temporary, and not the eternal. 
Perhaps you've witnessed someone who lost their saltiness along the way. Don't be that person. Living our lives according to what Jesus tells us gives us the assurance that our lives do matter because they are focused on things with eternal consequences that last forever. We are in alignment with God's wonderful plan to include his plan for our lives. Living our lives this way, continually growing in Christ and his likeness as we trod the path before us will provide the true and lasting happiness, the blessedness and the saltiness and meaning that many of you seek. And the light that shines brighter and brighter over time in you will impact eternity. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity this morning to look into your word, specifically the first part of Matthew chapter 5 as you were teaching your disciples and the others who were there, and us as well. Father, I pray that we would look into each one of these things and prayerfully ask you to shine a light on the things in our life that need attention, on the things in our life that you want to share with us. Father, help us to be more motivated to align our lives with your word so that you can continue to work through work through our lives, work through our conversations, work through our actions with the people that we interact with to bring glory to you, to draw them to you, Father, and to complete your will. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.